Welcome to Extraordinary People, the podcast that highlights people who inspire others, have made significant contributions to the world, or who have overcome adversity. This show is hosted by Shirley Bogtel, author, educator, wife, mother, and grandparent. Learn more and subscribe today at ShirleyWachtel.com. And now, here's my grandma, Shirley Wachtel. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Extraordinary People. I am so happy today to welcome Rosa Lowinger. Rosa is a Cuban-born American writer and art conservator. She's the author of Tropicana Nights, The Life and Times of the Legendary Cuban Nightclub, and Promising Paradise, Cuban Allure American Seduction. And she's the founder and current vice president of RLA Conservation LLC, the United States' largest women-owned materials conservation practice based in Miami and Los Angeles. A fellow of the American Institute for Conservation, the Association for Preservation Technology, and the American Academy in Rome, Rosa writes regularly for popular and academic media about conservation, the arts, and Cuba. She holds an MA in Art History and conservation from New York University's Institute of Fine Arts and divides her time between Los Angeles and Miami. Her debut memoir will be out in October, very soon, in time for National Hispanic Heritage Month. The title is Dwell Time, a memoir of art, exile, and repair, and it entwines the details of conserving historic buildings and artworks of with the story of her family's double exile as Jews from Eastern Europe in the 1920s and then Cuba in early 1961. So I just want to say welcome to you. Um, I And congratulations on your new book. Um, Thank you so much. I, I did read it and uh, it's just a, a really fascinating story. Thank you so much really my pleasure. I have so many questions um, for you, but I suppose we'll begin with what your occupation is, because I'm sure as a little girl, you didn't necessarily grow up as uh, hoping to be an art conservator. So I, I know the answer to this, but would you let everybody know how you came to sure. uh, get in that field? Certainly. Um, when I was uh, in college, I was an artist. I was always a good artist. I could draw and paint very well. And I went to college to study art. But I found myself technically very skilled with not a lot to say. And I happened to luck into a class with a professor whose wife was a well-known conservator of works of art on paper. And he pointed me in that direction. And that was how it happened. Nowadays, our field is a little bit better about promoting our work to a general audience and drawing in new faces from communities that wouldn't really be exposed to art and conservation. But back when I went to school, it was the luck of the drawer if you weren't from like, say, the Northeast. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit of what is entailed in what you do? Sure. Um, art conservation is essentially being someone who takes care of works of art, 
architecture, archaeological materials, decorative arts. And when I say takes care of them, I mean that we repair them when things go wrong, but we also aim to make sure things don't go wrong with something called preventative conservation. It The metaphor to medicine is pretty apt, although it feels a little overdrawn at this point. Mm -hmm. But that's what we do. We take care of works of art and we take care of material culture and heritage. The goal is to sustain things for generations to come, hoping not to have to make major repairs, but we're able to do those as well. And we can do that from the level of a ceramic that breaks to a painting that has a tired varnish that needs to be removed, or up to things like entire cities that are swamped by wildfires and hurricanes and earthquakes. Mm. Um, I'm just curious, how long would you say there have been art conservators? Because we know, you know, art has been with us just about since the beginning of time. Yeah, uh, the, the profession of art restoration, restoration as a repair profession has been around for centuries. You know, there's... Mm. Um, there's uh, evidence of things being repaired in ancient times. There's uh, documentary evidence of things like Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel being conserved within 50 years of its being um, uh, painted. But the idea of conservation as a technical scientific profession where we actually use science as the basis of understanding how materials deteriorate that is really something more from the 19th century. And the profession really begins to, to come into its own in the mid 20th century. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, today, where would you say we find the greatest need for work like yours? Well, there's need everywhere. But what we're finding lately is that, um, well, there's two things. One is in the great uh, problems that are happening with climate change in coastal cities where historic buildings are being threatened by rising sea levels and mm. all manner of different weather events, uh, collections in the path of wildfires. But we also see a great need in the world of contemporary art because contemporary art, which is the art that began to be made more or less after World War II and uses a lot of unusual materials, including many plastics, has other parameters for their conservation that we are still catching up with. So for example, it used to be traditionally in the past, you had buildings and sculpture, works of art on paper, paintings, murals, mosaics. We knew what these things were made out of. Nowadays, with contemporary modern art, the materials are changing constantly. There are new mm -hmm. paint systems, new plastics every day, and artists are availing themselves of these in their experimentation. So I think contemporary art is the cutting edge, as is the burden of climate change. And of course, in and of course, emerging collections in developing communities have a great need as well. Mm hmm. And um, how long? Well, let's let's let me ask you this. What sure. was the longest uh, time that you've spent working on a piece? Oh, that's a great question. 
Well, I think in my, I think there's been a couple of projects that have been multi-year projects Mm. and we're in the middle of one right now, but um, I would say one of the largest projects we ever did in my current iteration of my firm was the removal and relocation of a large scale mosaic mural from the facade of a hospital into the interior of a hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, Where was that? It? To, in, Where Houston, was? in Houston, Houston Texas, in Houston, mm-hmm. Texas, the piece was the um, it's a huge mosaic and the Houston Methodist hospital wanted to move it from one place to another. And that took about three years to do. I also, we recently worked on the, recovery and conservation of the retablo and sculptures and the building itself for the uh, San Gabriel mission in San Gabriel, California, just North Mm -hmm. of Los Angeles, where there was an arson fire in 2020. And this was a fire damage recovery project. But for example, though, yeah, but now as I think back, I realize in, um, Gosh, it had to have been the late 80s or early 90s when they moved the entire collection of the Skirball Museum from their old small quarters in downtown LA near USC to their current beautiful museum up on the hill in near Mulholland Drive. That entire collection was cataloged and examined and treated. And that took at least three years. So I think the longest project I've done is ranging around three to four years. Amazing, amazing. I, you know, I, I, it's not what you do is not something that most people, including myself, have given a great deal of thought to. But I think it's just such an important thing because what you're doing, it's, it's more than just art. You're preserving the soul of a people. You're preserving their history. So you know, kudos for you for for Thank doing you. such an important thing. Um. I like to get to your book. Um, sure, absolutely. That uh, again, it's Dwell Time, a memoir of art, exile, and repair. Something mm-hmm. that you did in your book, which I, I just uh, I loved, um, was your use of metaphor, where you have um, each chapter uh, picks up on a part of the process of restoration, but concurrently you're giving us the history of a family that's in need of repair and how that repair is being done with each chapter. So I love, uh, you know, as a writer, I love the use of, of the metaphor there. Um, so, well, first of all, um, tell us about the title. That's an unusual title. What do you mean by dwell time? Well, dwell time is a term that can mean many different things, all related to the amount of time that something takes. So, for example, I looked this up online. Um, it can mean uh, in in airports, they consider dwell time the amount of time that people are in the airport. So they use that to calculate the services that are required in an airport. Uh, in the train industry, the amount of time that the train is in a station is its dwell time. But in conservation, Dwell time refers to the amount of time that it takes for a material, a chemical, a gel, if you will, to do its job on a surface. So we use dwell time as a concept to manage 
how long it takes for something to work. And for example, the simplest example is this. If you use bleach to clean something, it has a very short dwell time because bleach works very fast, Mm -hmm. right? If you're trying to get a stain off, bleach is fast. Mm -hmm. But it's also damaging to most materials because it contains chlorine. So most works of art, you can't use bleach on. So you manage cleaning with other types of material that perhaps have a longer dwell time. And as a general rule, the the stronger the material, the shorter its dwell time. And oh, here's the other example. And I use this in the book. You know, the the way we've been washing our hands for 20 seconds, it's Mm -hmm. because, because soap, in order to kill viruses and germs, you need 20 seconds of dwell time of the soap on your hands. Okay. So it sounds like an appropriate title. Um, Why did you decide uh, to write this memoir and have this, you know, major undertaking in a life that seems to me to be already quite busy? You know, well, it was the pandemic year. First of all, I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about this idea since 2009, when I first read Primo Levi's wonderful memoir, The Periodic Table. Uh, Primo Levi, of course, was a Mm -hmm. Jewish chemist from the Piedmont region of Italy who was rounded up and sent to Auschwitz. And he wrote many books about the Holocaust, but he also wrote one elegant memoir about his work as a chemist called The Periodic Table. And in it, he used the elements as organizing principles for each chapter, not all the elements because there's a lot of them. But when I read that book, I thought there is a conservation book in this story. And the reason I so thought of writing a book about conservation was because there really aren't any books about our work written by practitioners who do the work. There's a lot of uh, romantic literature about our field, um, but very few that actually kind of get to the meat and bones about what we care about. And so, so that was my interest Uh, from 2009, Mm -hmm. but I didn't have a storyline. I didn't know what the storyline was. And in 2020, my father had died in 2019. Um, During the pandemic, uh, my mother, who has, as you know from the book, been a very important and at times difficult person in my Mm -hmm. life, was in Miami, um, locked down on her own very upset, very sad and scared. And the idea started to come to me. Mm-hmm. The the and I and then and then as with my original um uh, finding of conservation, it was serendipity that I met a book coach, a woman named Kristen McGinnis, who was working with me and a wonderful novelist in her own right. Um she was working with me on a novel that I was working on and I casually mentioned this memoir idea. And she said, you need to stop and write that book proposal because that has legs. And eventually someone wanted to publish it. Wonderful. Yes. Great feeling. Um, So um, in your book, um, of course, Cuba plays a very big role. So can you tell us a little bit about sure. the history of your family, um, which they I, I would characterize them. I mean, or, or they came from Europe originally, but um, I would characterize them as um, uh, 
Cuban Jews. And um, that is a unique experience in and of itself and how their experiences impacted your life, especially your mother's, of course. Yes, right. So my um, so Cuba is where I was born, and it's where both of my parents were born. And my grandparents were Eastern European Jews from, oddly, both from both sides were from various sides of Romania, but totally different sides, who came to Cuba in the 1920s inadvertently because so many Jews were trying to leave Eastern Europe at the time and the United States had very strict immigration laws that was that were aimed specifically at keeping out Eastern Europeans and Southern Europeans. And so my family wound up in Cuba. And unlike many Jews who wound up in Cuba at the time, they decided to stay because many just used it as a springboard for going somewhere else. Right. But my family stayed. And my father was born in Eastern Cuba in Santiago because his father just went off to work on the, um, you know, he he just went off to the East to work because he was an industrious guy and he saw that there was more work out there than in Havana. And my mother's father, quite the opposite. He stayed in Havana because he loved the, the nightlife. He loved the sizzle and and party atmosphere of Havana in that period. Remember, this is right around the time of prohibition when Havana became the biggest party town in the hemisphere. So my mother, he marries, my my mother's father marries and uh, my mother, my mother's mother dies from complications of childbirth three weeks after she's born. And this basically sets a series of calamitous events in motion for this little girl who became my mother that that scarred her for life and made her a fearful person to the extreme because she was passed around between family members, eventually wound up in an orphanage. Her father loved her, but he didn't really have the capacity to care for a little girl on his own. And he had illnesses. So when she married my father, who came from a very stable family, although my grandfather was sort of overbearing and imperious, she just felt like life had finally given her a modicum of safety. And five years later, the Cuban revolution upended that as well. So a lot of the book is about repairing my relationship with her through trying to understand her. Mm -hmm. Because that's what we do in conservation, you see. Um, The only way we can fix things or take care of works of art is to understand how they're made and how they've become damaged. And that's really the initiation of any type of repair that happens on the material level. And what I did in Dwell Time is I really just expanded that to the heart, to the, the process of healing a relationship that had been fraught my entire life. I see. You know, relationships between um, mothers and daughters especially can be very complicated. And yours, you know, and it, it seems to me obvious from your mother's history why she acted the way she did. But can you give us um, an example of 
that difficulty. I mean, I could use the word abuse. You have used it, but and and I understand. You know, your mother's still alive, right? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, and so, along with that, you know, give us an example of just how um, her her history affected her relationship with you, and um, and then now. I, I'm sure that you know you're you're still even in a sense working on doing that reparation. And how is your relationship with her today? Well, let me just say a couple of things. First of all, she's 91. Ah. She's gorgeous. Ah. You got to see her online. Her head, her brain is better than mine. Wow. She's you know she's unbelievable. Um, she's lost a bit of her, her fire and that has helped. Um, but she, now she knew that I was writing this book because she shared a lot of stories with me. And, and the other thing I wanted to tell you is my relationship with her has always been good because somehow I have, um, I, I see who she is. She's a really good and loving person. She's a good person. And she has always loved me with a ferocity that is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. um, that said, she had a trigger short, you know, a, a really short fuse. Mm -hmm. She would, her anger was volcanic. Um, you could piss her off on a dime and you wouldn't know what you did. And suddenly the day was ruined and she would do this all the time. And you could predict it on certain events, her birthday, she was always doing this. My father's anniversary with her, she was always doing this Mother's Day. So we loved her, my father and I, mm -hmm. my brother too. But we always, you know, she was something you had like a like a dangerous creature that you had to tiptoe mm -hmm. around. Mm -hmm. And what's happened is by understanding her and also doing work on myself to not personalize everything that she through my way, you know, you learn to kind of manage a person. And when with someone like her, who's had so much loss and abandonment and has so much fear of poverty in particular in her life, keeping her safe and loved is really an incredible palliative that, that you can only do if you cannot personalize some of what happens with her. Mm. Um, like my, this would be something that traditionally would happen. This after my father died, I'd go to her house. I'd tell her, I'm going to pick you up sometime. I'm going to pick you up after one o'clock and I'd show up at one twenty-five, Right. Mm -hmm. And she'd be mad. Mm -hmm. You said you were going to be here at one. I said, I'd be there after one. It's one twenty-five, And that would be it. The day would be ruined. Whatever else uh -huh. we were going to do, the day would be ruined. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where, and then we'd have a, we'd have an argument because she would trigger me. Right. right but learning to right. see where all this is from that, that, that she would just be upset and worried and something else might have done that. Right. Um, that there are paths to working with her. And there's a lot of people like my mother in this world. What I find is For in sure. life, there's so I find with my clients, you know, I have a lot of super wealthy people that are my clients. Mm -hmm. um, and there's more th of that than you could imagine. And it's so funny in my firm, I'm known as the whisperer for those people because I don't get upset. Uh, I don't personalize it. You know, like right. some imperious rich person in Palm Beach is flipping out 
because they can still see streaks on the surface of their sculpture. And I'm absolutely clear on what I need to do. You just need to hear them, accept that they, that they need you to listen, take care of it, and not personalize it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, even I can relate to, you know, I I, I had a um not a volatile relationship with my mother but you know that incident that you related as my mother got on in years um you know i i can really um i can really relate to uh those reactions um you know i believe that people write books um for for two reasons mm-hmm. they write them to learn something about themselves, even if it's entirely fiction. Um, And also they write them so that perhaps others can learn something from their story as well. So I'm going to pose that question to you. What have you learned from writing this book? And what do you hope that your readers will get out of it? Well, I've learned so many things, but I'll just share Two, when I was um, writing the book, what it was, tw- well, or when, when I was writing the proposal, it was 2020 and 2021, and then I wrote the book in 2022. And as I wrote it, I started to really feel that there is a bigger reverberation to this story of healing and repair. That from being an art conservator, learning how to cherish and give attention to and repair the material world. I learned also how to do the same for my family and for my relationship with my beloved mother who needed that, right? Mm -hmm. I also see it as a path to repairing in the world at large. You know, our world is so fraught right now. There's so much anger between people and communities and the news media certainly wants to whip up the differences between us. And the fact is a lot of people are hurting. And when they hurt, they lash out in ways that are mean-spirited, racist, um, deliberately hurtful. And obviously you can't understand every action. You're not going to excuse true violence. But sometimes we need to kind of come and approach other human beings who disagree with us whose point of view offends us in a way where we are not combating them, but kind of bringing them toward us. And I don't really want to sound Pollyanna about it because I don't think it's so easy, but I think it, you know, we have to have faith in the possibility of help of repair. And that's what conservators do. We, we face each treatment with the possibility that it can be fixed. We don't give up on works of art. And even when we say, well, this is as far as we can go. It accepts that some change is inevitable, but that we can get somewhere with something. And I think that there are broader implications in the world for that. That's that's the biggest thing that I've felt I've taken away from it. But the other thing is, it's just about writing. Um, I only had 10 months to write this book. I had one 20,000 word chapter written And I had 10 months to produce the rest of it because that's what the publisher gave me. Mm. And I thought, you know what? Things don't drop out of the sky like this. And if it has dropped out of the sky, I need to, I need to meet it. 
Right. And I realized that if you if you put yourself to the task of writing and you show up every day and you show up knowing that you can't not get it done, it's kind of amazing what you can get from your own mind. Oh, certainly. I would definitely agree with that. What a great answer. Um, one last question for you. Sure. So um, I just know you're going to have great success with this book as you have with the rest of your career. What does the future hold for you? What's up next? Um, well, that is a great question. I'm doing so much right now to just promote the book. I was surprised by how much there is to do. Um I am going to, I'm, I'm still working on the novel that I was working on when I started this book. I'm about a, 180 pages in, so it's pretty far along. It's a novel about Cuba in the 50s. And mm. the reason I got stuck is a conservator from Romania showed up in the novel and kind of took over. And that's where I went, wait, whoa, whoa, what are you doing here? Oh. So I'm still working on that book. Yes. But I also see that I have... Um, so there's another story I want to tell about that's nonfiction about materials, about repair, about community. It just hasn't come together a hundred percent for me yet. But the only thing I know that it's about is about the material terrazzo. Oh, very good, very good. That sounds fascinating already. Thank you. So, okay. Well, um, first of all, um, I want to thank you uh, for speaking with me today. And um, again, the um, novel is Dwell Time, a memoir of art, exile, and repair. I highly recommend it. Thanks again, Rosa. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Extraordinary People. To learn more about Shirley Wachtel, and to subscribe to the show, head to ShirleyWachtel.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Extraordinary People. Extraordinary People.